thanks for, for being here this morning. We're grateful that you've, that you've come. If we've not got a chance to meet, my name's Lance. I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's a great joy, a great privilege for me to get to consider the Bible often together in this time. So if you have a Bible, you could get that out. Uh, we're going to turn to the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, that's where we're at this morning. Just as you're turning there, let me give you a couple of things at the outset. Maybe today, it's on my heart and on my mind, just how easy it is for me to forget uh, the, the most basic of things. And so here I am reminding us over and over and over again. Uh, you may forget, or you may just not have thought about it for a while. Why is it that we study Scripture together when we gather on a morning like this? What are the things that we're hoping to accomplish? Well, there's a, a number of things. And uh, to say them out loud, I think is good. One is our confession, our shared confession as Christians is that this word is not an idle word, that this is the very word of God. It's living and it's active, and it is the thing that shapes us and forms us and moves us in the direction that he would desire for us. And so when we read the Bible together, we are doing one of the most fundamental forming aspects of our confession. This is what it means to be us. God has spoken. A few other goals, if you're curious. Things that uh, we would pray for. Well, what are we after on a morning like this? Well, I hope that we have a better understanding of the Bible. This may seem simple as well. But one thing especially that's been an opportunity over this summer, and I hope you've taken advantage of it, is to think about the whole picture of the Bible, the story of the Bible. It is a very good thing if you find yourself months from now desiring and needing hope or needing encouragement for you to recall back and to remember and say, wait, I remember the section of Scripture. And for you to know your book better is one of the goals. To say, I know where to find these promises. I know what God has done and I want to reflect on it. So one of the plain goals of a morning like this is just that we know the story of God better. That we come to understand and consider these words with more clarity. And then finally, if you asked me, well, Lance, what is the goal of a morning like this? Why are we studying the Bible? I have a very pointed answer, and that is because we are preparing ourselves to come back to the book of Romans and understand or try to reckon with the plan of God for his people. We've taken this summer, and we're going to be coming back at the end of Romans chapter 10, and realizing that where Paul is in Romans, as we've been teaching through, where Paul is in Romans is he's contemplating a very difficult question. Essentially this, there are great and grand promises for God's people on the one hand, and on the other hand, what he sees is a stubborn, blind group of people who persecute and murder those who call on the Messiah. In his own words, he is, he's broken inside, He's to the point of despairing. He at times wishes he himself would be accursed because he's trying to understand and he's trying to see through God's lens to what the plan is for the people of God. What is the story of Israel? That's the question that we've been asking and attempting to answer. And we've come quite a, a ways. If you don't know too well the story of it, by the time we get to Second Chronicles, we're pretty far into the, into the story. And what I would say is, is here's my, my goal for a morning like this, as we come to the end of this section. This morning is really the last of the history proper messages out of the story of Israel. Next week is going to be a reflection on what the people of God thought during the time when they were disorganized and out of sorts. And so here would be the hope. 
as we come to the end of the story proper of God's people, I hope that there's one big word plastered over all of the Old Testament, a word that is often not associated with the Old Testament, and that word is grace. It may not be your instinct to say, when I think of the story of Israel, when I think of the story of the people of God, especially the Old Testament, and I asked you, well, what do you think of? My guess is you'd have to go through a few words before you got to the word grace. And yet I think that that is, through many armies sometimes, through many whirlwinds, kings rising and kings falling, kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling, I think what God is trying to do is paint a picture that his people exist and persist and will exist in the future only because of one thing, and that is the grace of God. We've seen that again and again and again, and my hope and my desire is is that you see God working graciously again this morning as we look at 2 Chronicles. So that's the idea. We don't want to see God compartmentalized. We don't want to believe that in the Old Testament he was stingy and sad. Brian mentioned last week we don't want to see him as holding his finger joyfully over the exile button, but instead that he has always been a God of grace. And nothing good ever, ever, ever happens to God's people except that God is relentlessly, extravagantly gracious. So that's going to be the point. That's what we're driving to. Let's uh, look at 2 Chronicles together. We have a small task this morning. We're going to try to consider the entirety of a whole book of the Bible. Easy. Easy to do. Like Staples used to have those buttons you could press that just said easy. Or whatever. That was easy or something. It's not going to be easy, but I think we can get there. I want to look at the first verse of 2 Chronicles chapter 1 to give you some context, to remind you of the ups and downs, the roller coasters of the people of God. What does it mean to receive grace? Well, it means that you don't deserve it, and something must have been happening consistently to receive something they didn't deserve. And that's the story we're going to tell and rehearse again this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 1 starts with a focus on Solomon. One of the unique things about 2 Chronicles, in reference, say, to 1st or 2nd Kings, is that 2 Chronicles begins to take a turn and is a very direct look at the southern kingdom of Israel. It's going to chronicle its kings almost completely. But it starts with Solomon in a very upbeat way. It says this in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Now, I'm going to pause there, and I'm going to wonder, I'm just going to guess, I'm hoping that we've been trained well. In the story of Israel so far, in the story of the people of God, what are we trained to think whenever things seem to be going unbelievably, exceedingly well? A fall is coming, right? That it's not just going to be sunsets and daisies from here on, on out. Second Chronicles begins with the third of three kings who are ruling over unified Israel, And Solomon is getting to the point where he is preparing to do the unthinkable. He's going to build a temple where God himself will dwell with his people. He's going to dedicate it. He's going to say all the right things. Remember, we saw this in Kings a few weeks back. He's going to say all the right things. He's going to be exceedingly great. And then he's going to fall. And as you turn through the pages of 2 Chronicles, just page after page, you begin to see this same history unfold. Reminded again at the good deeds or the good moments under Solomon. By the time we get a few chapters in, he is dead and gone. The kingdom splits, and the book focuses solely on the southern kingdom of Israel. 
The southern kingdom of Israel was often tempted toward pride. They thought, well, we're lasting longer. We're more true. We have the temple. We of all people are above falling or failing. We have our weaknesses, but there's no way anything could ever touch us because look what God has done. We are the people. My kids are... My kids are all into like uh, it's gaming, right? I think I say that in a funny way because uh, my mother-in-law one time was asking my wife and I if we knew what kids were into these days. She said, "I know a friend. Their kid he threw his whole life away on what they call they're calling it gaming. That's what they're calling it. So just imagine the world of gaming, right? There's a there's a little phrase that one of the kids said. Apparently, it's a it's like a a brag or a boast to say, I'm him or something like that. I'm him. Like, I'm, I'm unstoppable. I'm like the main character. I'm like the, the boss. I'm like the undefeatable one. I'm him, right? And I think that the southern kingdom of Israel, as you turn through the pages of Second of Chronicles, despite the fact that they had kings who were failing over and over and over again, I think they had that spirit about them. They felt invincible. They thought, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how many times we fail. We are the people of God. We have the temple. We have Jerusalem. We have the walls. None of this could happen to us. Somehow, despite an entire history of God working with his people and seeing them fail over and over and over again, they missed those warning signs. So we're going to do one of the fastest fast-forwards possible. We're going to go from the first verse of 2 Chronicles chapter 1 to verse 15 of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're going all the way to the back. 36 chapters. The story of southern, the southern kingdom. The story of a people who probably in their boast said, sure, the northern kingdom could fall, Samaria could fall, because they've been wayward, but not us. And we read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, a very somber ending to the southern kingdom. Starting in verse 15, the chronicle says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, this is one of the most devastating therefores in the history of the people of God. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And after they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. We're going to pause right there. The passage that I just read, at nearly any point in the history of the people of God, if you had asked anyone living in the kingdom of Israel after all they'd gone through, do you remember all they'd gone, they had gone through? Do you remember the great lengths that God had taken to get them to this place? 
Think all the way back to the calling of Abram. All the way back to the miracles wrought in barren wombs. All the way back to people enslaved. All the way back to the wonders of the Red Sea. All the way back to the giving of his law, the wandering, the conquering of nations, the falling of walls and of kings before them. And then a reign of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. All that God had done, patiently warning, patiently waiting, and it's gone. It's gone. And in order to press home how gone it's gone, this passage we just read uses five times the word all. All. Pure devastation. Total loss. And where this leaves God's people at this particular moment is in a very, they're in a very tenuous spot. They're in a tenuous spot because the wrath of God has come, and despite all the promises that are still there, and despite the fact that God is still true to all the things that he stated, here in real time, in the circumstances they find themselves, nothing is going well. The unthinkable has happened. The temple itself has been raised. All of the tools, the useful things for worship and for sacrifice have been desecrated. And all of this takes place, according to 2 Chronicles, because of the persistent waywardness of the people of God. There is a stubbornness, a stiff nakedness. It sounded like naked, but stiff necked people. And in order to get at the story of grace, If we're going to get the story of grace, one of the things that we must insist on seeing is just how persistent the waywardness of God's people is. The worst part about the section that we just read is that according to the Chronicles, they deserved it. Every bit of it. They deserved it. There had been warning after warning after warning. The passage opened in 2 Chronicles 36, we just read, saying that God had sent persistently. He sent them messenger after messenger after messenger, and it was out of his compassion and his grace that he had done so, but they mocked those messengers, ignored them, despised the words, scoffed them at them, and sent them away. God's people had been warned over and over and over again that these things were going to take place. Jeremiah 25 Here's a for instance. Jeremiah chapter 25, starting in verse 3. For 23 years, from the 30th year of Josiah, the king of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. 
Jeremiah had a very difficult ministry. He spent his entire lifespan essentially giving warnings to essentially what was a, a brick wall, as I'm sure what it felt like. And when Second Chronicles records that God had persistently sent prophets, he's thinking about people like Jeremiah. He's reminding them that they had not only received prophecies concerning goodness and inheritance, but they had received warnings about their wayward hearts. And those warnings came with very clear instructions of what was going to happen if they did not turn from their waywardness of heart. In fact, it's, it's shocking when you look back. You read the end of Second Chronicles and you think, wow, this is unbelievable. All of it is gone. And then as you turn through the pages of Scripture, you realize, no, God said that He would do exactly this. Jeremiah, in later chapters of the high 20s, describes this exact thing, that God would come in His wrath, that Jerusalem would fall, that the temple would be raised if they would persist in their waywardness, which they do. The book of Daniel describes this as a result of their waywardness. And more than that, it describes down to the very generation of how long this exile would take place. Those might be prophets that you are familiar with, Jeremiah or Daniel. I think one of the things that's very interesting to me is that another place that God warned about this concerning his law is directly in a place where he gave the law, that great prophetic book, Leviticus. Tucked down there in the midst of Leviticus is a warning to his people to say this, I'm giving you this law, but if and when you fail to heed these warnings and walk in my ways, and if you turn to other gods, then all will be lost. And the land that I'm giving you, and the cities that I'm giving you, and the temple that you have, it's all going to be taken from you. More than that, Leviticus says specifically that they're going to be taken into exile and will there last essentially a generation. It says 70 years. Now, much is made of just how long this was. Somewhere around 600 BC. If you want to get specifics, it seems like 587, 586. There's a 30-month siege of the city of Jerusalem. And that is more or less when what we just read is when that takes place. All the prophecies say then this exile is going to last essentially a generation, 70 years. And sure enough, 70-ish years later, we find that God moves in grace. So remember, this is the story. We're moving toward grace. In order to establish grace, you have to establish the fact that they can't earn it. I think this is one of the great challenges of the Christian life. If we rush to grace too quickly, it's often not grace. And so we have taken time this summer, and I'm taking time this morning again to rehearse with you the northern kingdom which had already been broken off in two because of the sin of God's people, the northern kingdom has long gone to Assyria, and now the southern kingdom, the unthinkable, the city itself is gone, and they deserved it. 
So the question becomes, what does God do now? Remember these prophecies, Jeremiah and Daniel and Leviticus all describe the just warning, the just punishment that's going to come for their waywardness, but also God's undeserved favor. So if waywardness is a way of life for the people of God, what we are coming to see in the picture that's coming more clear throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is that grace is a way of life for God in dealing with his people. And so in the same way that I just worked through and saw all of the punishment that that has come and has been due to the people, we're going to now look and see that God can't help himself. He is consistently and persistently gracious to those whom he calls his own. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. I stopped reading in verse 21. That's not the end of the book. We have a God who insists on not ending the story on terms of judgment. Because in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, despite everything being lost, it says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it was in the first year that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This addendum, in many ways, to Chronicles ought to be to us more shocking than what preceded it. You see, the the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple and the destruction of all the precious vessels, that was deserved. That is just deserts for constantly and persistently being wayward. But what is this? Where does this come from? Where does God's consistent, unbelieving, relentless pursuit of his people come from? What is it in the heart of God that moves through a pagan king in a far-off place and says, no, this isn't the end of the story? The people of God do everything that they possibly can. It's like their entire, they're just bent toward destruction. They're bent toward waywardness. But God simply refuses to let that be their story. For no reason. There's nothing taking place in this little gap here between verse 21 and 22. There's no performance. There's no amazing feat. There's no accomplishment. There is nothing but the sheer, powerful, persistent grace of God. And the story of the Bible is this over and over and over again. Waywardness but God. Resistance and stubbornness but God. 
And I know that the Old Testament gets a bad rap and it's destruction and it's punishment and God is different. And then in the New Testament, he gets a new PR agency and he, he becomes gracious and nice and merciful and everyone likes him. And I would just say that's not the story of the people of God ever. Here within a few verses, look, look how Second Chronicles end. Within a few verses, everyone is taken off into exile. Everything is destroyed. And then a few verses later with no ex- other explanation except that God is persistently gracious we go from destruction, get out of here, to let, the, let God be with you, go up. The only worthwhile thing about God's people ever is His grace. Ever. And it's either His grace that is keeping them faithful, or calls them to be faithful, or forgives them when they're unfaithful. but none of it is deserved. What we're seeing here is that God's people as a thing, the story of us is that we have been carried along in every generation and at every single moment by an unexplained, undeserved, relentless, fierce love of God that refuses to let us go. And this has also been consistent through the prophets. So if one complaint about the people of God is you didn't listen to the prophets, then maybe in the moment of their despair, the complaint about them could have been you didn't listen to the prophets. You see, the word of God had told them if you continue on in waywardness, everything's going to be destroyed. Then everything's destroyed and they say, what? We're in exile? You didn't tell us. And he says, no, persistently I told you. I'm sorry to do this, but there's a Taylor Swift song. And it just fits so perfectly. It's called Exile, I think, even, right? And like, this is just Israel with God. They're like, you didn't give a warning sign. And then the God's over the top saying, I gave so many signs. Do you know the song? I'm sorry to introduce it to you if you don't know the song. But this is legitimately what Chronicles is saying. Israel again and again and again, like, I don't know. What, what, well, God, if you didn't tell me, we're just being destru- destroyed. And the Bible is saying again and again and again, I gave you so many signs. You ignored every single one of the signs. But let's learn the lesson now. If the waywardness of God's people leading to their destruction was that they ignored the signs, they ignored the word of God, then... They're going to be surprised by grace only if they ignored the word of God. We're going to go back to Jeremiah. I said he had a very difficult ministry. He spoke to a stubborn people, a people who never responded. And just as devastating as Jeremiah 25 is, just as devastating as his entire ministry was, it is also that hopeful. Because a few pages to the right in that same book, God can't help but gush with grace toward his people. He says, remember this, this happened because God said so, and grace happens because God says so. This is Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, starting in verse 6. Of his people and of this land and of them as a nation, he says, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. 
I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall to be, be t- to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for them. I just want to pause there for a second. I'm going to read two more verses. What an amazing promise. You guys remember the Michael Scott, Scott quote where he says, some people want to be feared, some want to be loved. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. You remember this quote? Do you see what God just said? He says, they will fear and tremble because of all of the good and prosperity that I provide for the city. His grace makes you tremble. That's what he says. If you get it, if you see this, God says, you don't get my grace. You don't understand the commitment that I have to my people until you're, you're trembling at how good I am. So he goes on in verse 10 of Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. The destruction of Jerusalem came because God said so. And grace floods in because God said so. And I believe that over and over again, one of the difficulties of the people of God is to heed warnings. And we do not heed warnings in two directions. We do not listen on the front end, and we are often surprised at the outcome of our lives because we have neglected the Word of God. We are surprised and fail to admit so often just how needy we are. It's like we miss that. Or if I get it one day, if I say to myself, no, wait, I'm wavered. Left to my own devices, I'm going to miss it. This isn't going to work. I'm building on sand. And I get that one day, and I wake up the next morning, and I think, man, but today I'm pretty cool. Today I got this. And one of my major problems is I fail to heed the warnings of God for destruction by ignoring him. The nation of Israel at times lived in pride like that. Maybe that's your tendency. Maybe you know people like that, where you feel is that they are on, they're stiff-necked in the sense that they believe that they can do it, that they're fine, that they're insulated, that nothing bad could happen. Jerusalem is, I mean, this is God's place. You fail to heed the warnings. My guess is that there are also many on the other side. Many who grit their teeth and they grin and bear it through difficulty. They feel the pangs of all of the desolation that has come because of their waywardness. In fact, they even own it. They would say, I've made a mess of my life. I'll never be what I wanted to be. Good things haven't come and they won't come because I don't deserve it. And what the story of the people of God is screaming out is that sometimes you can be stiff-necked in that direction too. Sometimes you can 
Refuse to tremble at the goodness of God. To realize that your story and our story, just like the story of Israel, it does not exist except that God is unbelievably, relentlessly gracious. I believe that the story of the people of God is a constant and an ongoing struggle to listen to His Word, both for our good prior to destruction, but more so to listen to His words of grace when we've made a mess of our lives. This picture that Jeremiah gives... He says, yeah, it's going to be destruction. There's going to be no man or beast. It's all going to lay fallow. But one day, wedding bells. And one day, joy. And one day, feasts. And one day, life. So, let's pretend you only knew about God from the New Testament. And let's say that someone said to you, well, let me tell you about Jesus, because Jesus really is the point of Scripture. And I said, here's the thing about Jesus. We need to be found in Him because Jesus died taking on a punishment of sin because we've all gone astray. And we all deserve the just punishment for sin, which is death. And so we really need to embrace and realize our lostness and then in Jesus, go with him to the cross because death is what is deserved for, for sinners. But then more than that, did you know this? That God is so good that in Jesus, if you would trust him and just believe, if you would just believe that what God was actually doing in coming to grips with death in Christ is that he was coming to grips with life. And that what you need to believe is that God can actually bring life from death and that if you're in Christ, that you can imagine a future where all of the difficulties and all the punishments and all the sadness and all the shame from sin in your past, that it will all be done away with. In fact, you can imagine a future in Jesus where every single tear is wiped away. There's no more disease, no more cancer, no more struggling with lust, no more struggling with anger, no more family dysfunction that goes down who knows how many generations, that it's all going to be made new in Jesus. And if that's all you knew of the gospel, then I hope that you'd say to yourself, I want in on that. And you might be shaking your head and saying, yeah, yeah, that's all right. That's about the story. That's it. That's how it works. And what I so long for you to see, and what I I think that, that Paul would have longed for Israel to see as he's preaching through Romans, is that that's always been the story. That's not just a New Testament story that's brand new in Jesus. Now, there are some new things that come in Jesus. It works, for one thing. But is this any different? Within a couple of verses, we read, oh man, the people went wayward, and the just punishment and the the due result of their sin is that everything was desecrated. It was all just gone. There's exile into slavery, and there's death, and there's destruction, and there's nothing left. But here's the crazy part. God is so good that he sends a decree And for no other reason other than he loves them that he finds a way back to life and he begs them to receive his grace and to realize that one day in the future that it's going to be remade and rebuilt. There's going to be a glorious hope and life and mirth and wedding bells and feasts happening in the city of God. It's the same story. It's been a story of grace from beginning to end. Now here's the question. The question is, 
In what ways are you tempted to ignore God? Are there persistent reminders coming your way right now, just like the, like the people of God have had through the ages? What persistent reminders are you putting on mute? Like me with my snooze button in the morning. One of the things that we must confess is that waywardness is real. It's in your heart and it's in my heart. And the part of God's grace is he's given us persistent warnings, but I'm often stubborn. Beyond that, I would ask you this. Where are you tempted to ignore and to not believe God's grace? That he's not going to be good enough? That you or someone in your family is too far gone? That the problems are too big? The sins are too deep? Cynicism's too comfortable? Is God gracious enough? Is he loving enough? Is he persistent enough? The answer is always, always, always yes. I hope that we're learning the the history of God's people. And one of the most amazing things is that Jeremiah is a prophet over the top of this history and that we're seeing the way that the northern and the southern kingdom are, are working in time and in history, and we're maybe getting an understanding of what's happening, and maybe when we go back to Romans, you're going to think, yeah, I want to think like the Jewish people who would have listened to this message. But in addition to that, the same thing that I've said over and over again through the weeks, I hope that you see this as our story. And then when you think of the way that God's given you grace, it's not just what he's done for you in Jesus when you were eight or whenever it was. You'd say to yourself, man, God has been gracious from the beginning. And I love to read this history because I see him in these pages. That would be my hope. That we get low and God gets big. And we can rejoice in his grace. Let's pray together.